Hey there, all you dreamers and tomorrow knots. This is Nick. And Hasted. Welcoming you to the slightly belated Tomorrowland Times anniversary commentary. And we've got a great lineup of uh, special guests for you in the way of interview excerpts from conversations that we've been lucky enough to have over the year of Tomorrowland shenanigans. It's hard to believe it's been over a year already, but yeah. And our adventure goes much further back than that, but today we're focusing on the film itself. Absolutely. And uh, we've gotten to talk to some of the creators of the film, and beyond our own reactions and interpretations of it, let's, let's get some stuff from the horse's mouth. We sat down through the means of interdimensional communication with Mr. Damon Lindelof, legendary writer and uh, producer, and we wanted to ask him about the structure of the film and how it changed through the editing process, including those controversial bookends. Here we go. It's fairly um, normal when you're making, a, especially a movie of this size and this scope, for you know, for the for the first time that you watch it, uh, wire to wire, for it to just not work. Mm-hmm. Like uh, that's been my experience, not just in television but in film, and it seems to be the experience of. Um, many of my collaborators. It's sort of like, you know, it's very common to see, to, to see, be like, oh my God, this is a disaster. What are we going to do? Um, because there are so many moving parts. Right. And then you get, you know, really talented editors and surround yourself uh, with great collaborators. And then, you know, the process traditionally, I could talk on and on and on about uh, everything that we did, but boiling it down to it you just cut out all the stuff that doesn't work and then you see what's left I see. um and so one of and and then you you try to identify uh other problems and i think that just to speak specifically to the idea of the bookends right. you know of frank's uh voiceover or or uh george appearing at the very beginning is there was a sense that the movie took too long to get to frank walker mm-hmm. um that by the time Casey got to him, it was sort of like, hey, you know, George Clooney's on the poster. We saw him in the trailer. Like, it, it, it's not like he's some big mysterious reveal. And even Luke gets to Obi-Wan, you know, 20 minutes in. Right. So there was just this, it, even though you the prologue featured young Frank, we kind of felt like we needed an, an injection of George very, very quickly. And that was the sort of, um, that was the thinking at first in terms of, uh, oh, let's start with this, uh, with this, with this opening of him ad- uh, uh, directly addressing the audience. And then the other issue was the stakes of the movie. You know, understanding that it takes quite some time for Casey to reveal that, you know, what ha- not only did something happen in Tomorrowland, um, but that what happened there, um, if it cannot be solved, will impact the fate of the world itself. And so we needed right out of the gate for somebody to say, uh, this is what we're looking at. You know, we're looking at potential apocalypse. Um, This is the state of the world that we live in now. And so it it was probably not done in the most deft way when you're when you're dealing with reshoots or, you know, um, or solving problems in the editing room. All the all the ideas that you had of of nuance and uh, trusting the audience, uh, you know, writing above the audience and knowing that they're intelligent enough to basically get it, you start to doubt yourself and you just like, I need a character to basically say, here's what the plot of the movie is and will get to me shortly and uh, et, et cetera, et cetera. So that was kind of the thinking behind the framing mechanism. Prior to the revised opening that Damon 
just discussed, the film picks up very linearly originally with Frank building his jetpack in his garage, going out and uh, giving it a test flight, which obviously we see flashbacks of in the sequence at the World's Fair, even in the finished film. But there was a much longer version that included several scenes with the father kind of setting up Frank's relationship with his father and and the strained nature of that. Right, yeah, and I think that we still get some some glimpses of that. Yeah. But it's definitely a case where you know the stakes for Frank are a little bit higher too and a, there's a lot of character development there that's very difficult. You sort of understand why he's a loner, you know. You even get a better you even get a better sort of reference to like why he still lives in this house. And a handful of the the right. zany things that there happen are, there. There are there are actually in that in those deleted scenes which are available uh, in the digital version of the film for people to find, which we won't specifically plug here, yeah. uh, because we're not sponsored by any rodents of any kind. But there were many small references that were set up right at the beginning, which we now have the payoff for still in the finished film. But when you go back and you watch those deleted scenes, it's very interesting, like the the harvester that he builds the automaton for, which Casey, in the film, it almost plays just like, Casey's very clever, and she turned on some old piece of farming equipment, but in fact, young Frank had built an automaton to control that uh, in response to his father. And so there's just a lot of little things like that, but... You know, opening a movie like this, I can sympathize with the uh, the struggle of determining what to focus on right at the beginning. And ultimately, they decided that focusing on Frank and Casey at the beginning and and introducing their kind of Doc Brown, Marty McFly right. dynamic was, was so more important than the father. Basically, with this particular scene, you basically have all the characters being introduced in the first, you know, X number of minutes of the film, the first six minutes versus and you you get the guy in the poster as damon said in the movie early (laughs) right and so this obviously this is a little bit of that we get a flashback that includes at least the idea that the relationship with the father is strained in the finished film but we don't get the full nature of that and uh it, it almost having those scenes in the back of my head watching the deleted scenes makes it worth so much more when frank gets the pin here right and so the pin situation is very interesting because obviously our early adventures led us to getting the pin that's on the giant poster and there are so many right now there are so many over the years we've seen so many different versions of this pin but there was one version that only recently did we get a peek into and uh, we asked brad bird a little bit about this this what we now you know is referred to as the Nix pin. Right. And it was never used in the film. They couldn't find a place for it. But when we asked him about it, Brad Bird broke down some of his feelings about the different pins. And uh, this was on the press day for the Blu-ray release. Yep. And so here's a little taste of that conversation from Brad Bird. We designed uh, that logo to be the 64 version, the... 80s version which is the to me the best one um and then there was a version that is kind of like the uh, microsoft version you know where they put too many goo gaws and it was overthought it's like it's like you know really it should be the other one and that was going to be the next one and we never found a place for it in the movie it's it's too bad because I think I don't that, even know where it would have shown up though personally like, I can't imagine a place that the Nick's pin would have made sense in Maybe instead of the wristwatch to control the monitor or something. Or, like, or as the background wallpaper on his wristwatch. Yeah, screen. or something. 
Uh, that is another point of contention that I've seen some people argue about is why why does Nix wear his watch on the hand that he shakes with? Yeah. He's an eccentric gentleman. It was so funny because I remember we were at Destination D and they were showing clips of this film and This scene uh, in particular, the World's scene... Fair the World's Fair sequence, because we had the pleasure of seeing a presentation by the production designer Ramsey Avery, and obviously He's as big of a World's Fair nut as we are, and so his whole presentation was about recreating the fair and even getting It's a Small World back into its original formation somewhat right. for this this sequence, which uh, this this was the moment that I think... I mean, we had met because of the Optimist alternate reality game, as everyone listening to this, I assume, already knows all about, but when I saw this sequence at Destination D of the It's a Small World scene, I think I was hooked for life. I mean, this is... Such an inventive uh, use of the secret world and, concept. Yeah, as a huge theme parks fan, you know, the Disney parks already have this massive sort of lore. So I really liked this idea of kind of playing into that lore, building another element that naturally just happens from the whole, like... And ties know, into every part of Disney history, in a sense. And, and in, a, in a, even wider, this the history of optimism and invention and imagination. But... It's worth talking about in the scene where uh, Frank is approaching the platform that this is the place at which the history of Plus Ultra animated film was supposed to occur in the film itself. It was going to play out in its entirety. Right, as like a dark ride style attraction. And we even saw, I think, one behind the scenes picture. We've only seen one picture. There's no footage available yet of that scene they were projecting onto smoke screens as Disney is wont to do. And apparently they got to the point where ILM was mocking up pop-out cardboard, you know, like Yeah, pieces. and then they just realized that it's a very boring experience watching someone else and, ride something. And, and what's very interesting that you and I have never discussed before, but e they tried to keep that in the movie very late. Like, even though they decided to not have the full animated film fairly early on, up until even the final revised draft of the screenplay, they had included a truncated version where George Clooney from the opening bookend pops his head back in again and says, uh, make a long story short, plus ultra, secret society, yada yada. There was a joke about truncating it. So they were really attempting to get that animation in there, even in a truncated form. But eventually they just decided it was not fitting at all. And uh, it probably would have slowed down an already sizable prologue. Yeah, I mean... That being said, I really enjoyed the few theaters like the El Capitan where they played the Plus Ultra animation prior to the film. Which I think made a great kind of, uh, you know, pre-movie animation. Right. And it was amazing to have been at Destination D because the moment that they showed all the World's Fair things, they showed him getting onto the platform, they showed him, but they cut the footage right after the doors open. Right, right and before so, the scene we're seeing here where he's like standing on the platform edge. So for fans who were following the development of this movie, for months and months and months and months, the idea of what Tomorrowland the city actually looked like was remained in our imaginations for a very long time. And I remember being very shocked when he finally walked in. And oh my lord, it is a, it is a perfectly wonderful sci-fi landscape. I, I think in my head I was expecting even the Tomorrowland we see in the early sequences under construction. I somehow expected a retro-futuristic aesthetic. 
but they went full bore pushing forward sci-fi a look here and i I think, right. I think that's a better way to go about it absolutely and i mean from a reveal perspective i really like that you sort of have these you know these hijinks and shenanigans with the robot before we see the city the robot. i was really expecting you know those doors open and it's like we see the city and i really enjoyed the fact that we get a little bit of adventure and reveal right before we hit that point Side note about the robot that you mentioned, which is currently repairing Frank's jetpack. Um, that robot, this is not an often cited piece of trivia, but it's called the Goliath. And um, there's a good Goliath, which is this Goliath, and the bad Goliath, which we see at the end, which fight uh, in the finale of the movie. But same design, different colors. And uh, we were supposed to, for those merchandise fans out there, we were supposed to get a toy Goliath, but uh, when... Uh, when people started to get nervous about uh, the film, I, that was one of the products, one of the many canceled products uh, that uh, never made it to fruition. But uh, one holds out hope of finding a, a prototype sitting on a shelf somewhere. Uh, yeah, so... These early scenes were relatively, as I understand it, untouched from the earliest ideas of what this movie would be. But even before the first time they shot it, the first you know time we were revealed footage, or even the first cut of the movie, there was a very different film in the minds of Damon Lindelof and Jeff Jensen when they sat down to write it. One that doesn't look anything like the movie that we saw, and we, we honestly didn't even know about. So we were very shocked when Damon uh, told us about this early version. Well, I, I think that the first draft was really largely generated by Jeff Jensen and myself. Um, there was a tremendous amount of world building uh, just in terms of designing the actual um, backstory of Plus Ultra. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, um, the secret history of, of, the, of the geniuses dating back to particularly the Paris World's Fair, mm. uh, but even before that, and uh, this whole idea of, you know, of doing Harry Potter for science, you know, so who, where, where is Hogwarts, who are the magicians, um, and identifying all that stuff. And then obviously, I think that uh, uh, that's the funnest part of, um, of storytelling is world building. And then the, the more complicated part is sort of figuring out how you cram all of that into a a two hour movie, um, especially when the audience doesn't really have any pre-existing knowledge of the world. So it's not a Marvel universe or a star Wars universe where you're, you're sort of arriving with an, uh, with a fundamental understanding of, uh, of, of what the rules are. You have to kind of write the rules yourself. And so that process, um, we kind of call it the iceberg process, which is it's all the part of the iceberg that is under the water that you never actually see. And the movie itself is the iceberg that's kind of jetting above the water. Um, that, that, um, that's all you're actually going to demonstrate. And so Jeff and I um, had a lot of fun, but it was immensely challenging sort of wrestling all of that into the actual story of what's going to take place. And I think that, you know, what we, what we landed on was, um, going to be sort of a globe-trotting uh, adventure between three major characters that were essentially linked by uh, Athena. Mm-hmm. Um, one was uh, Casey, uh, who was growing up in um, in Canaveral, 
Another was um, a Japanese a Japanese teenager uh, who was in Tokyo, and the other was um, a uh, a young doctor, well, female doctor in Australia. Huh. Um, and each one of them were going to receive pins uh, from Athena, and they would have this glimpse of the city in the field of wheat. They'd also see each other. Um, and then the majority of the first act of the movie was for them to try to find each other to verify that this experience that they had was, in fact, not all in their head. And then the plot kind of went from there. And so I think even the idea of Frank Walker um, uh, was uh, was embedded in what Jeff and I were working on. But Frank was not a character that they found until like the beginning, the end of the second act. Hmm. So once they verified that what they that what Athena had shown them was real, then they have to go find Frank. And then Frank brings them into Tomorrowland. But Frank is sort of like uh, a member of the um, of the kind of outcasts of uh, of Plus Ultra. Um, uh, and and this idea that Nix had basically kind of banished everyone was still very much in play. But Frank basically brings these three characters into a meeting with all these other people who have been kicked out of Tomorrowland. Um, and then they all, uh, you know, kind of stage a, um, a siege uh, on Tomorrowland, kind of going back in. Jeff and I kind of wrote a version of that draft. And as we were writing, we became very it became very clear to us that it it was unwieldy. There were too many characters in it, oh. too much exposition. It was hard to get kind of any emotional grounding. And so we very quickly started to um, uh, figure out that uh, a simplification was sort of required. Is there a way to just do this, you know, to take three characters and make them one, right. bolster the relationship between that one character and Athena and bring Frank more central to the story so that we were probably getting to him by the middle of the movie as opposed to by like the, you know, the 80th minute. Right. Um, so we were already kind of making those um, creative decisions around the time that Brad uh, came on board. Brad and I were working on uh, Mission Impossible. They brought me in just to basically do some 11th hour, um, you know, story work after the movie had been shot. And I was hanging out with Bird. That's really how I got to know him. He asked me what I was working on next. I sort of let it float that, you know, I was trying to develop Tomorrowland. Right. And as a huge um, Disney aficionado himself, uh, he started having all these ideas. Um, and Brad is obviously not just a director, but a writer and a producer as well, and an animator, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So he rolled up his sleeves and... Um, and from, from that point forward, Jeff was getting sucked back into the Entertainment Weekly uh, world, and, uh, and Brad and I kind of took the ball um, and started working on the actual movie from there on out, with Jeff kind of working more on the backstory, uh, world-building aspect of Tomorrowland. So that was Damon's side of the sort of first draft. And so now uh, we can take a look at Jeff Jensen's side. We actually had a chance to sit down with him uh, over lunch at a small pub so you may hear some background uh interesting sounds but join us won't you at our little booth well damon and i worked on this story for tomorrowland just he and i for a good year from about 
January of 2011 um, until um, February of 2012, um, with a couple interruptions in between, most notably Damon needing to uh, go away to write um, uh, the second Star Trek film. Um, but during that time, it was uh, it was this just really lovely process of me and him working in his office, having lunches maybe two or three times a week, just kind of like brainstorming and uh, blue sky dreaming. And, um, in, 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 and uh, we had a lot of freedom and we had a lot of time to do that because Disney knew that Damon, Damon's first obligation was to the Star Trek sequel. And so he couldn't really start writing Tomorrowland until he fulfilled that contract. Um, but Star Trek II kept on getting pushed because J.J. kept on going along with Super 8. So, but that, that was a real benefit to Damon and I because then we had just more time to talk and talk and talk. During that time, during that year span, we kind of like, we went from a scenario in which we envisioned a movie that was sort of like, um, that was... Uh, the, the Harry Potter approach to Tomorrowland. That was actually the original version that we kind of sold. This idea of of a kid that kind of like like stumbles into Tomorrowland within the first 20 minutes of the film and has an adventure in Tomorrowland and there's a problem that needs to be solved and he solved it and uh, or she solved it and that was it. Shortly after that, we, we, we saw that version of the movie, but we felt like we'd, we'd seen that version of the movie before, too. So we kept on talking about could there be a different kind of approach to this movie. And we kind of fell in love with what we called the Close Encounters model of this movie, the discovery version of this movie, in which um, instead of getting into Tomorrowland in the first 20 minutes of the film, um, Tomorrowland was a place to be discovered. and You got to it in the last act of the film. And what we realized was that that structure for us expressed more cleanly like the theme that really interested us, which was this sort of rumination on the idea of the future and whatever happened to our dreaming of the future. And this kind of like idea that we had that 50 years ago when people dreamed of, dreamt of the future, yeah, there was a lot of present day problems and they didn't see it being perfect, but people actually thought of the, the future as, a, as, a, a, as something that in which uh, things would get better and that it was something that you built. And this, um, and this was, uh, and now today when we think about the future, we only dream in dystopia. We only dream in apocalypse. And we think it's something that's going to happen to us. That's inevitable. And there's nothing that we can do to change it. And we wanted to tell a story about the, 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 those competing ideas about the future and to ask the question, is there something about the way that we used to dream about the future that can be salvaged and brought to the present? So the idea of a discovery movie, of someone searching for the embodiment of that old way of thinking about the future, we just kind of felt like that was just so much more like, like in, in narrative structure, like mirrored the themes that we were most interested in. We thought that could really support one version of the movie. So yeah, so for about a year, Damon and I developed a story that can support that, and it went through a lot of different permutations. Um, and one idea that we fell in love with pretty quickly was the idea of three protagonists. 
So initially there were three characters that were having three different separate experiences, which each of them would get a pin. They would find a pin landed in their life somehow, dropped by some mysterious agent, Athena, uh, to sort of like give them this pin so that they would each um, catch a, a glimpse, capture their imagination for the future, and they would each kind of go on a journey to find out, the, 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 to solve the mystery of what did I just see. And the idea would be is that these three individuals would ultimately kind of meet and go on that journey together, and then that they would enter Tomorrowland together and either, like, getting to Tomorrowland was just the object of the whole thing, or that they would have to come together and enter in Tomorrowland and solve a problem in Tomorrowland. And that became the focus of our problem-solving and story-building for a good year of the film. Um, in early um, 2013, uh, Brad Bird came aboard. Um, Damon had been working with Brad um, on, 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 on Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. They became friends during that. And Brad, being a huge Disney buff and really interested in Tomorrowland, um, was very intrigued by Damon like telling him about all of you know, what he was currently working on with Tomorrowland. And um, to, to be really honest with you, I remember very clearly right after we did our deal, where we, when we originally pitched the movie and we sold the movie, and then our deal closed, and then we had our first official meetings as signed writers with Disney executives. We went out to lunch. We, we hadn't even put pen to paper. We, we, were, we were just deciding, yeah, that movie that we pitched you, we're going to do something different. We're going to do the Close Encounters version now. Um, at that lunch, I remember Brigham Taylor, great guy, great exec, um, uh, said, you know, it's, uh, you know, we're feeling really good about this thing. So it's not too early to start thinking about directors. Who would you like to direct this movie? And we kind of didn't know, like at that time, but I remember at that meeting, or very early saying, when I think about the themes of this movie, when I think about what I want people to feel, what I want is people to feel the final moment of the Iron Giant. And that moment where, like this big, beautiful robot, this symbol of so many interesting things, including the future that has been blown apart, is finding its way back to each, back to itself and reconstructing. I said, like, this movie feels like what we're making is like a spiritual sequel to The Iron Giant. And so Brad Bird would be my, my choice. And then lo and behold, like a, a year later, Brad Bird would be directing this movie. And um, when Brad came aboard, yeah, it was, it was a dream come true. And he began working with us and solving... Uh, the, 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 the storytelling problems that we were having with that script because even though we had developed this story over the, a period of a year by the time Brad came aboard we were having some, some, some major sticking problems we, by that time we realized that maybe the story couldn't necessarily support three protagonists um, we really wanted to support two and so that kind of settled on this uh, female hero Casey and um, uh, and and uh, but but when Brad came aboard, it, more streamlining took place, and so ultimately, um, it was decided to consolidate all of our heroes into one. Casey, the story that we conceive for Casey um, is, is very similar to the Casey that you see in the movie. I, I would kind of argue that the Casey of the movie 
It was very much the Casey that was in our original conception of the character from the get-go. But it was all about the best way, tonally, I think, to express everything that she represented. She was always supposed to be a dreamer. She was always supposed to be um, a quote-unquote optimist, looking to the future. But the, for me, the, the defining idea of Casey was is that she was a dreamer in a world that no longer dreamed her dream. And so how do you dramatically like express that idea in her character? And so the one idea, and, and, and how do we also express the idea of a culture, of a society that doesn't dream her dream anymore? So this kind of led to a variety of considerations in which we could create scenes or character moments that could express this idea while also kind of really giving the idea of a, giving Casey a character arc. And uh, so the original conception about the way to do that is maybe that we're finding Casey at a very kind of pivotal point in her own life where she kind of grew up this wide-eyed dreamer and now kind of like being worn down and ground down by a society and a culture that was giving up on her dream and she was getting worn down by it too and that she was worn down by the the messages of pessimism and cynicism that were being promoted to her and so that when she finally gets that pin you're meeting someone who really needs that pin because she's an optimist and a dreamer that's ready to give up on optimism and ready to give up on dreaming and so she needs that pin right and so in our early scenes with 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 casey um that's the idea that we were really playing is that we were we she was a dreamer in crisis and that um yeah, she was executing this act of protest and rebelliousness by trying to blow up the machines that were tearing down those, the, 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 the NASA launch pads. She was fighting destruction with destruction. Right, right. <laughs> um, but she was trying to keep the dream that, that, that is re- of, of futurism and optimism that is represented by our space program alive by destroying the stuff that was destroying it, right? But there were other scenes, too, in which we try to express that idea. One of them was the, um, the school scene where she's hearing all of her teachers go on and on in their various different disciplines about you know, dystopian ideas. And our original conception of that idea was is that she would be sort of like listening to all of them go on and on and just like, just be like depressed by it, bummed out by it, just like, like I can't deal with this and just kind of very sulky and sullen about the whole thing you know Um, that was one way in which we would demonstrate that idea another way in which we demonstrated that idea was um, the the, the two wolves speech now in the movie that you guys saw um, in the movie that we came out with um, it's Casey who gives this speech gives this speech to her father a NASA engineer who is himself being kind of like suffering, uh, who, who is suffering from a disillusionment, right? And so he's using the, she's using the story that he used to tell her to try to like pump up and, uh, his optimism and, 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 and curb his disillusionment. But in the original version of the script, um, 
this was actually a speech that was given by Casey's dad to Casey over breakfast in which you got to see her extended family, including the fact that she has a mom. Yes, Casey had a mom. She wasn't just another Disney heroine or, or, or child heroine that didn't have a mom. Casey did have a mom in the original version of the script. And uh, so it was Casey who gets this speech from her dad. So yeah, so in the original version of, of, of the script, you kind of have this portrait of a dreamer who is losing the dream. Um, optimist who is losing her optimism because the culture is just kind of wearing on her. And so when that pin drops in her life, she really needs it. And that kind of fuels her emotional journey to go chase it. Some of the feedback that we were getting from that version of the film was I think that what Disney was telling us and what some test audiences were telling us and maybe even ourselves we, we were kind of seeing us that is that if the idea that Casey is an optimist, if Casey is a dreamer, we're, we're, we're being a little too clever and we're being a little too nuanced by essentially dramatizing that by portraying her as the opposite of that, at least in that moment. That's what it was feeling like on screen. She's a dreamer. She doesn't seem very dreamy. She's an optimist. Boy, she seems pretty gloomy, you know? Like, and I would be like, you know, but... But that's the idea. She's a dreamer and she's being defeated by blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah, we don't get it. Um, it's not, that idea is not coming through. Maybe we could dramatize this differently where she's more on point as an optimist, on point as a dreamer. So in trying to fine tune that and get and, 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 and recast those tones, adjust those tones on Casey, um, those scenes were reconsidered. So in, 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 in new material that we shot, instead of her just suffering her teachers, she's fighting back against her teachers with her upraised hand, right? Um, and then in a very clever idea that Brad and Damon came up with, um, the Two Wolves speech was recast as Casey giving that speech to her dad. Um, and in and, 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 and a way to really kind of be very bottom line simplistic about it, the portrayal of Casey's dad in the movie really kind of expresses the original version of our, our, our portrayal of Casey. Uh, I, I still think I like the idea of Casey expressing Casey in crisis, the dreamer in crisis, the optimist in crisis, because for me, from a character arc standpoint... I think that that makes her arc more interesting. So now it's just not just like this earnest, plucky dreamer getting a pin that confirms her world and then kind of like her worldview and then she's going and chasing it. It's more like, no, she's like really emotionally and philosophically motivated to find this place because the idea being that if she, if, if this really is a dream, if it's not really true... She's lost spiritually and uh, spiritually speaking, because um, she's she's on the brink as it is. Um, but I can understand that, like you know, you're, you're watching this movie and you want to take a journey with this character, and you wanna you want to like her and you want to be on board with her and you want to you know you you want to. I can you know I can understand in making those adjustments. And interesting as it is to hear about 
the alternate uh, version of Casey. I quite like the version of the character that we got in the movie. And uh, it is an interesting diversion to watch those deleted scenes that Jeff discussed. A sort of more Spielbergian opening for the Newton household of, uh, you know, uh, her father, her uncle... And his family is living with them, and it's a very chaotic household, and and it's a, it's a fun scene, but uh, in a movie that really, above anything else, needs to establish Casey, I do think we got the better uh, of the of the introductions in the finished film itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her her family, you know, you had a lot of those scenes too that just, from a time perspective was a lot more difficult. I mean, what's great about this setup now is that we have the, you know, we have the brother, there's a lot of connection there, and when you had that large family, it just would have been difficult without spending a ton of time to create that sort of And I think some connection. people, some people feel like the movie's long in the tooth as it is, because it clocks in right at about two hours. Oh, yeah. Not, not including the credits, so uh, uh, having an even longer version of the movie... I can I can put myself in a mindset where I understand the impetus to do some of those reshoots and to try and slim the movie down, especially at the beginning, uh, in order to jump right in to the uh, road movie aspect. And despite any of the things we've been discussing about uh, the difficulty of that opening bookend with Frank, I think that you know once we're into it and once we're on that adventure, this road movie. Uh, genre fits. I agree with I agree with Jeff in that it is I think the ideal version of this story. And when I think about you know the sort of experiences that they sort of did with Tomorrowland leading up to the you know the release of it, it fits that sort of perfectly as well. You know they discover this this sort of you know the the link connection to the pin on ebay and then she you know gets out in this greyhound bus and i think that you and i as well as all those fellow optimists who played the optimist uh had a particular connection to this movie that a general audience did not because a lot of the emotions that casey goes through and indeed frank goes through when he's kicked out felt startlingly similar to emotions that you and i experienced right in the lead up to the film and uh, there was a feeling of having been shown something incredible only to be left in the dark for the remainder of the right. anticipatory period leading up to the film. And so uh, we do have that particular connection. But I think if they were to have included so many little details to address just people like us, it would have bogged the movie down, which, as we said, is already long. And uh, we asked Damon about some of these cuts and what went into the thought process because I think there were some people that felt that it was intentionally uh, removing Disney references when it sounded like, in fact, that wasn't the case at all. And out of a, a kind of micro consideration of the timing and pace of each scene, it just so happens that some of those references that maybe you and I and some of our friends were looking for didn't make it into the movie. So when we sat down with Damon... Uh, on Skype, we asked him about that particular issue. We just had a huge length problem. The movie was just too long. And for someone who, like, you know, even loves the Marvel films, um, (laughs) you know, two and a half hours is just a a long time to be sitting in a movie. And if you're servicing 18 Avengers, um, I think they added a 19th while I was saying that. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, we... We really only have these, you know, these five main characters to service. So um, 
there was no excuse for our movie to be significantly over uh, two hours. And also it just dragged pace wise. And I think that, right. you know, so we needed to basically tighten it up um, and uh, hopefully not at the cost of, uh, I think probably the removal of uh, Walt's mentions wasn't an artistic decision that was like, let's get Walt, the, the Walt mentions out of the movie. It was sort of like, by the time we got to the Gernsbacks, um, it was sort of like, let, they've got to give some exposition here and then it's, and then it's Athena time. So let's get, let's get things moving. And all those ideas are sort of connected to one another. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, well, if we keep the Walt mention, we have to keep what he says before and after that. And that adds another 45 seconds to a scene that's already four minutes long, et cetera. And you shouldn't be talking about storytelling as math, but you just watch, you know, we would watch the movie in its entirety. I don't know. I've probably seen it well over, uh, you know, a hundred times in its entirety, let alone each scene hundreds of times. And you just go like, okay, the movie just lost me here. I have, my mind started to drift. And so we need to tighten the scene even further. And so you, you, you just, you know, you just pare things down to their base essentials. And talking about the Walt connection, Damon gave us some more information on that. Uh, pretty fascinating. Too bad it just ends up being an Easter egg in the background. I mean, I think that as soon as we had the idea that there was a secret society of geniuses, um, that the geniuses needed to comprise of not just, you know, scientists and master of technology, but also entertainers and artists as well. And then, you know, because the IP of Tomorrowland was Disney's, you know, we very quickly locked into this idea of like, what if the theme park was actually just, you know, the false flag for the real place? Um, that, that wouldn't Walt use the Imagineers to actually be not building animatronic robots that entertain people, but building animatronic robots that could infiltrate society and pass as human? Um, not, all, all, not for nefarious gain, but for, um, but for the purposes of scientific advancement. And so very early on, you know, we were talking to Sean Bailey about saying, look, Walt Disney is not going to be a character in the movie in the way that, you know, Tom Hanks portrays him and uh, uh, that they were already doing the, the Mary Poppins thing. But he but Walt has to be a character in our backstory. And do you think that's something you can sell? You know, do you think that's something that, you know, that Bob Iger and, and, the, and the Disney board will be uh, cool with if we start kind of wrapping you know, Walt's own involvement into this box. And we're going to, you know, the, you know, the idea that Walt and uh, Orson Welles were working on a secret project together, um, that Walt was uh, up to something more at the 63, 64 World's Fair. Like, are, are you down with this? And, and Sean got so excited about it. It was an easy sell for him. But the box was the way that we basically got the movie greenlit, uh, even before there was a script. And so we had to construct those artifacts and do a show and tell for all the Disney executives. And, and in our presentation of the box, we played it straight. Like we actually right. found this thing. It's real. And, you know, uh, a good number of them believed it. Right. Um, and, and I think that really speaks to um, your own level of enthusiasm, which is it just feels like Walt Disney was, he had his fingers in so many different pies. He was interested in so many different things mm -hmm. and, and, well, and his, yeah. his, his, yeah. his fascination with futurism in general, it just made all that stuff believable because people, because we wanted to believe it. And that small mention Damon made there of the 1952 box, uh, was a springboard for, uh, in our conversation with Jeff Jensen 
uh, he laid down the full history of the construction and uh, the conception behind the 1952 box, and we will very soon be releasing that document into the world for everyone to enjoy the full history of the 1952 box. But uh, needless to say, it was an epicenter for all of the inspirations that uh, led to the backstory of the movie. And it is fascinating to imagine that a lot of the initial conversations that the creators of this movie had were somewhat relegated to the backstory. And I don't personally see that as a bug so much as a feature because I enjoy this story beneath the story. And there's just enough in it to make people curious. And if someone who knows nothing about Tomorrowland, say... 10, 20 years down the line, watches this movie and starts to scratch their head and say, gee, you know, I'd love to know more about Plus Ultra, they will be able to Google it and they will be able to fall down a wonderful rabbit hole that you and I and all of our friends had the opportunity to immerse ourselves in for going on three years. And we're going to do our best. If, if there's anything of a mission statement behind Tomorrowland Times other than where dreamers stick together... Yeah. It is, I want to make sure that there's always a digital resource for people to find when they discover this movie. Because I, I imagine it becoming a cult hit, and I want there to be a place that will not go away. Obviously, it's that Disney connection that, you know, the optimist made that hooked me in. I remember seeing the initial tweets and stuff about the box, and I had, you know, not a lot of interest. And I think that the building experiences obviously you know made me obsessed with this film but it's definitely an angle of that disney connection is ultimately you know what really is so fascinating and there's this element of in this story you get this sort of you get this tease you get this experimentation of you know this alternate reality sort of mixture and that we played sort of this formal alternate reality game, but that alternate reality exists in the film. You know, I got super excited about the history of Disney because it was these little sort of pieces and references to things that weren't around anymore in the parks or why things were a particular way that really drove me into it, you know, kind of as a kid, you know, 14, 15 year old kid. And I think, as this film continues over the years, as kids see it at random events, it's shown, they for find free, it on... For free yeah. at Flushing Meadows <laughs> Park. But, you know, I think that we're already starting to see that in a lot of surprising ways from some of the things that we've reported on from teachers using the lessons of the movie to their classes. I mean, it is starting to pick up steam in a very interesting way because I think at the core of it... Uh, it expresses ideas that are not being expressed elsewhere. And it's doing them, in my opinion, in a very elegant and interesting way and in a framework that is beautiful and through a set of characters that have a dynamic that represent the themes that we're trying to explore. And so I think that we're in for a, 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 a real cult hit here as the years go on and, uh, I'm excited to see how future generations respond to it. I mean, people who aren't even born yet, who will look back at the Disney canon and perhaps the superhero genre isn't their thing and they wonder what else there might be to 
to enjoy and uh, maybe someone recommends this movie to them or maybe they stumble upon it in whatever the future version of streaming films is. Yeah. And uh, that is, that's a level of optimism that I've gotten back that I maybe didn't always uh, keep as the, the public and perhaps more specifically the critics turned on the film. I myself got very wearied by by having to constantly defend what I thought was a, a and I continue to think is a wonderful movie. And well, and I think it's very easy today to think of films as being this very sort of disposable thing. Right. This idea that they have their launch weekend, they succeed or not, and then society is over them. But the truth is, is that unlike the other fandom, you know, the theme park fandom that I enjoy so much, obviously. This film, the story of it, everything else, will be around yes. forever. And the reason for that is, even though some entertainments, perhaps even some produced by the same studio as this film, are indeed meant to be disposable and maybe not held up to the scrutiny of repeat viewings, the people involved with the creation of this movie, namely Damon Lindelof and Brad Bird, throughout their careers, I've been a fan of both of them, and it was kind of magic for me to see that they were making a film together. And in that sense, from day one to today, me talking to you about it on this commentary, this movie strangely feels like it was made just for me. And so, in terms of those edits that Damon was talking about, it makes absolute sense to me, especially in terms of the blast from the past scene, that there was a lot of exposition already, and this was the one time we were getting some level of explanation to Casey about the world and what's going on. So I can see the Walt reference being excised out of there. The part that doesn't track for me in that explanation is systematically, and perhaps this was just on a case-by-case basis, they weren't thinking about it in a, in a global sense, but other than Frank at the end of the movie, when Nix finally shows up, you wanted to see Tomorrowland, here it comes, the word Tomorrowland isn't spoken throughout the movie, even though we know they recorded it in, in, in Casey and Athena in the truck. She says Tomorrowland, and, and in the Blast from the Past scene, Casey calls it And even at the front of the film, in the prologue, where it's supposed to be the two of them holding hands, and then does she, she says Tomorrowland. Well, she doesn't say Tomorrowland, and this is another interesting little tidbit that was gleaned from the uh, screenplay for the film, is when he says, so what is this place? She takes his hand and leads him to this grand view of the vistas of Tomorrowland. That was when they smash cut to the title of the movie. So the the title Tomorrowland wasn't at the beginning originally. It was right in that transition from the World's Fair to introducing uh, Casey. But yeah, it, it, it was very curious to me. And retroactively, it looks almost intentional. Like it looks like, okay, but well, the first time I saw it, I thought, whoa, when Frank says the word Tomorrowland, it suddenly became, I became aware, no one has said the word Tomorrowland in this movie. Right. And, and then there was that trailer where it's like, Tomorrowland, Tomorrowland, Tomorrowland. And it's like, none of those made right. it in the film. They had cut a TV spot where, I think it was one of the Japanese TV spots perhaps, where it was literally a montage of every character saying the word Tomorrowland. And uh, almost none of those uh, made it into the movie, which... Um, as much as I appreciate the, co- the considerations of time, uh, I don't know that I understand how one word out of a sentence or a scene would uh, affect the time too much. And I think in a certain sense, it almost s- 
creates more questions than it answers. One question was about who is Drummelberg in the Feynman Drummelberg scale? Oh my God, Drummel, Drum, uh, to, to, I cannot reveal that answer to you. Drummelberg is a um, is a fictitious character um, who would have probably appeared in um, in in Tomorrowland three, not Tomorrowland two. Just we would have we we would have definitely built up the um, the suspense uh, towards the it, what we what we refer to internally as the Drummelberg reveal. Yeah, sometimes sorry. mystery is more important than knowledge. <laughs> uh, I, 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 that's, that's what's, that, that mystery had built my house, my friend. And that is not the answer I was expecting from Mr. Lindelof. I imagined that there was some esoteric figure in history that was not Googleable for whatever reason. And yet it does seem to be either some kind of inside joke, which is funny. I mean, yeah. Drummelberg's a funny name, but, uh, that it was not the answer that I was expecting from that. Uh, especially when we did figure out who Feynman was, but, yeah. but not Drummelberg. So uh, another bit of, perhaps because Damon is such a fan of Star Wars, the idea of when Obi-Wan in the first movie said, oh, the Clone Wars, when they talked about the Clone or you fought with my father in the Clone Wars, Leia says, there was no Clone Wars. There was, it was just a throwaway term. It was, it was something that sounded cool. And I think this movie has a few of those, and Drummelberg is one yeah, of them. Yeah, Definitely. So expect a Drummelberg prequel. Yeah, if the if if our massive hopes for a continuing plus ultra comic book series ever come to fruition, we can expect an entire anthology episode about who Drummelberg was and uh, why he created this scale and what that was all about. But uh, these scenes with Casey and Athena in the car are so charming to me, and it really nailed the appeal of Athena as a character of this old soul trapped in a young girl's body and just the, uh, the snappiness of that and how that expresses itself through dialogue. I think these are very clever, uh, clever sections of the movie, but it really is almost, uh, an anticipation structurally of getting to Frank. They're talking about him We're we're, we've met him as an audience, but she hasn't met him yet. Right. And so... Uh, and ultimately, I think that works a lot better than us waiting for the grand reveal of Frank at his house. It is interesting to watch the scene as Frank is ultimately revealed halfway through the movie. Because it was very clearly shot to be a reveal. The idea of the sun flaring behind his head and then him stepping into it, which is an immaculately shot sequence. Right. I mean, Brad Bird has such an eye, and and the movie compositionally is extraordinary. And, th- and that is part of what Jeff Jensen was talking about when he was discussing bringing Brad Bird on, is he brings that timeless sense of, we're making this movie, as we were discussing, for future generations. This isn't disposable. This is meant to be revisited, and this is meant to be brought into your life in a way that continues on. And uh, I love these touches with uh, young Frank and young, um, young Athena. You can almost imagine an entire series of adventure stories uh, between them going yeah. on in the intervening years between Frank getting booted out. There's a lot of years between 1964 <laughs> and uh, 1985, right? Or is 80, it 1984? 84, So it's yeah. exactly 20 years. Then. Yeah. 20 years brings a lot of adventures. Oh, yeah. I absolutely love 
Frank's house. I love everything about it. I love that it's this mixture of his own past with the technologies that he's brought into it. Because obviously none of these security cameras or advanced uh, booby traps were from his father. These are all his his own reinterpretation of his own past. And uh, that character dynamic to me is what this movie is all about. It expresses the theme of this movie in really interesting and dynamic ways, including this lonely little holographic dog, which as a fan of the movie, I was very curious if this dog had a name. So I decided, let's ask Damon about this. Uh, uh, Does Frank's holographic dog have a name? uh, Glitchy. Glitchy. Wonderful. (laughs) We're going to put that on the wiki. Please. We haven't added that to <laughs> no, any we wiki. No. So if any listeners would like to add the fact that Glitchy is now the canonical name of Frank Walker's holographic dog, even though Damon was clearly inventing yes. that name on the spot, uh, for future inevitable merchandising uh, opportunities of the plush nature, we need to know that this dog's name is Glitchy. Does so- a chain really make any sense for a holographic dog? Now here's the question. Is the chain holographic? It would have to be. I think she just stepped through it. Yeah. So one would assume that is a holographic chain. So it's all part of the illusion that he's crafted. And uh, in this wonderful house of, uh, of booby traps and gadgets and all sorts and of technology. things. And technology. And technology. Uh, and I would love to get a set of blueprints for the set. Because clearly they built this whole house. I mean, they just built it out there. Right, yeah. And, and uh, how the rooms uh, that we end up jumping through in the attack sequence coming up here all connect would be lovely uh, to see. So one day, if anyone out there can raid the Disney archives and get us the blueprints for Frank Walker's house, uh, we would be much obliged to you. But uh... this 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 dialogue between him and her is really like there's this there's this element of he knows that she knows right away obviously even before referencing the fact that she's got the pin and then i mean we saw this again this was at comp this was at new york comic-con one of the first scenes we had seen from the movie since destination d right and this whole comment that he made connected so crazy well with us because there was this element of it did feel like he was speaking directly. It felt to like us. he was just reaching out through that screen and speaking directly to us and saying that ex- that amazing experience you got with this pin was a one-time thing, not really intended to continue or be a thing. Or if it ever was intended to continue and be a thing, something went awry. Right, yeah. And as it does in the film. But uh, a wonderful moment in the movie and just a really dynamic uh character relationship to establish these two people casey and frank what is that about and we get it in the first scene here and that kind of this determined optimism versus this sort of like discrediting he's like i've been where you've been right and And now you're gonna grow out of it and i'm gonna show you why the world isn't that way and it's so beautifully written and honestly i think it's a great performance by uh george clooney and particularly in one moment when casey says a little girl gave it to me, Athena. There's a moment, which is not scripted at all, where he almost says Athena's name, and then it hurts him to say it, and he continues with the line that was supposed to be there. That is great acting, and that is nuanced subtlety that um, that, I, that I feel over the entire movie. But uh, th- it, it, it's, 
it's these moments that add up to something I think that's really special. Oh, and uh, for the for the continuity nerds in the scene that is currently Casey looking around the house and finding all of the uh, finding all the antenna and all the dishes, the radar dishes. Uh, her jacket goes from being unzipped to zipped. <laughs> And, and and I feel that this must be the tone of our commentary, which is deep philosophical thoughts on thematic considerations, coupled with esoteric trivia that no one will care about but us. That uh, will later appear on IMDb under the booths <laughs> section. Oh, won't that be gay? <laughs> but yes, uh, so as we... There's this element, too, that I love that he's watching this, like, ridiculously... He's got all this technology, and he's sort of watching, and the one TV, that one in the kitchen that has, like some sort of program on it, is the oldest of the TVs. There's right. this weird, like, there's this weird drive His life that... has become doomsday. And in the structure of the movie, the brilliance of that setup for where Frank is now versus where he was then is he has fallen to Nix's expectation. Because at the end of the film, when they finally show down, he says, you gave up. He was talking about mankind, but in terms of the movie, he's talking directly to Frank because Frank did give up. And just as Nix is in a world surrounded by Doomsday, here's Frank doing the exact same thing. And to me, the most, the, the, the biggest character thing that I really loved about Frank's character is, and it's later on in the film, is when they're all in the, in the transport pod. And there's this, there's this, it's very extremely well acted, this glimmer of hope when he looks at Athena and yes. he says, do you think she can really fix it? Like a, a beautiful, and we get that awesome sort of spark of yes, hope. Yeah, and it's a beautiful moment that is enhanced by a beautiful moment that's about to come up, which is a flashback to young Frank and young Athena. And little did we know, shooting this flashback was quite an ordeal with the two young actors. When we got to sit down and talk with them, we asked them about which scenes of theirs were deleted that they wish we could put back in the movie, and they said the full version of this flashback because it was much longer. And so uh, let's hear Thomas Robinson and Raffi Cassidy. Um, there was this one, I think a little part of it, but there was this one scene we spent like a hundred takes or something oh, filming yeah. um, in like this laboratory mm. as a flashback. And we put so much work into that. And I thought it was a really cool and kind of funny bonding moment in the scene. And I think it would have been great to have that in the And it wasn't the one that was in the movie. It was a different one? Because they gave you the one flashback, but it was really short, right? Yeah, it was just an extended version of that. Oh, like, it was like maybe four times that length. It was like an entire scene. It's quite an important um, storyline because when Casey sees that, she realizes that there's a connection. Mm. So I think that's a, a quite an important storyline. Listening to them talk about how many takes they had to do and thinking about all the material that the various editors who worked on the film had to work with, my mind started to wonder and I thought, will there ever be a day when for the hardcore fans like you and I, a very niche market, there is a pipeline of production that allows for some kind of uh, fee or subscription that allows you, once the movie's long past, I'm talking five years after the movie comes out, you pay some fee and you're able to go through and watch every shot that was ever shot for the film and just see what it was like day to day on set. The only experience I can think of that I've ever heard of of anyone being able to do that was when uh, Charles Lazarica got to do the restoration of Blade Runner. That was literally what he got to do 
for that film was watch all the dailies and choose moments for his documentary that were not included. And so in future days, as we often dream of someone, some compassionate soul out there allowing us to raid the Disney archives, uh, future Tomorrowland documentaries should indeed include alternate takes from this movie, including the flashback with young Frank and young Athena that we love so much. This scene with Frank and Casey in the doomsday room, uh, for want of a better phrase, to me cuts right to the heart of the movie. And, and more than that, it gets to the broadest depth of themes that I imagine Tomorrowland being able to tackle. And at the end of the day, the great myths of our time get down to some pretty basic conflicts some ideological conflicts. And what are Frank and Casey talking about when they talk about probability? When they talk about, you know, what if I could tell you when you're going to die? And then we observe as one word from Casey changes that probability ever so small. But what is this talking about? This to me is pure Damon Lindelof. And it's talking about free will versus fate. It's talking about a deterministic universe versus a chaotic universe. And the fact that this one scene can take the movie to that place is, to me, remarkable. There's an absolute elegance. There's a timeless elegance to this exchange in particular. And of, of the scenes in the movie that, where these things come out, this is definitely one of my favorite. That moment, when we first saw the movie and we were sitting in that room with a bunch of critics who were clearly not liking the movie, yeah. I was having a crisis in my own head, like, oh my gosh, what's happening what's going on but when we got to this scene particularly i mean i was already won over by the movie but i knew not only did we have a good movie we had an incredible great film with this scene it knocked me out i felt like i was hit by a brick wall uh this scene was so beautiful to me the moment when casey expresses her optimism and that probability changes which is something that a lot of people that don't enjoy the movie point out as just a complete logical error in the film to me i'm like well you were never meant to enjoy this movie because that is the movie that moment is the universe of this movie right this this whole concept of you know we do we do sort of take control and i think that i think that there's been a lot of things in society that have that have dragged down you know especially young people in regards to feeling like disenfranchised from the moment that you're born to the moment that you die there's this element of you will always exist within a certain sort of box right and uh, yeah this movie just tackles that whole concept completely completely head on and when you think about that sort of goal you know way loftier than just hey a couple kids find each other and get to go to tomorrowland like it goes from being like yeah. you know this is what our from being like kind of like a theme park movie where it's right. like oh they get to go to this place and have a great time and solve a problem to actually addressing kind of this big problem that we have in our head in our heads today and, and i think it's a problem that we've always been dealing with as humans and that's why it resonates so much with me and so we're right when i hear people asking for that version of the movie you just described the theme park version that's a a wild ride through tomorrowland let's spend most of the movie in tomorrowland to me they're asking for the movie to be less than it is because you would lose all of this you would not have this dynamic that we have and to me it has been so valuable to have this myth, to have this metaphor in my life as a way of addressing these issues. Because we all have to deal with them at some point. I've had to deal with them. Everyone does. And 
it's not even just... I mean, the thing that really is remarkable to me is it's not just that this screenplay and this film addresses that issue and, like, flirts with it. Like, many movies, they'll drop lip service to something. They'll, they'll, they'll roll off a few key words and say, oh, look, we're, we're touching on this. This movie not only starts there, but where other movies would just say, oh, free will versus fate. Oh, no, you have free will. It's that easy. No, 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 no. The mo- this movie's answer to that question and how it reconciles free will versus fate, which to me is one of the ultimate questions of our lives as humans, is Absolutely. how do you reconcile free will versus fate? There was a great address of that in the Matrix trilogy, and I think there's a very different address of that in this movie. And it act- this movie actively says something about it. It doesn't just say, oh, look, everything's chaotic free will and you make the future. Yes, that is one aspect of this. You make the future. But you can't deny that in a science fiction sense... The whole universe of this movie, the concept, is predicated on a faded deterministic universe. Else, the monitor as a device would not work. Right. But the fact that it can be altered, and what can it be altered by? When you start to ask these questions, like, what is it that makes this seemingly determined future changeable? Oh, it's the people in our lives that change the way we think about things, that challenge our assumptions about how the world works. And that, to me, goes all the way back to what Damon Lindelof was trying to do with Lost. And it's about finding your tribe. It's about finding your people and coming together. And when you think about Plus Ultra and you think about sending out pins into the world, what else are we talking about but finding your tribe? Right. And in the context of the story, like, that it didn't work because the dream of that whole you know, finding their tribe was... it was Flawed in some way. Right. And this is a big question people have when, oh, the movie doesn't answer why Tomorrowland failed, why Plus Ultra failed. And thankfully, we have a beautiful series of extra experiences in a transmedia sense. This story bleeds off of the screen into other medias, and one of the most elegant and beautiful of which was a novel that is a prequel novel before Tomorrowland, and so when we did finally have the chance to sit down with Jeff Jensen, obviously, he wrote the novel, and as much as he created so much of the universe of this movie, so how could we not discuss Before Tomorrowland with him? And as our heroes in the film travel into the history of Plus Ultra with their journey upcoming to the Eiffel Tower, I thought, what better place in our little reverie, our little commentary here, to travel back into the past and ask Jeff Jensen where the ideas of Before Tomorrowland came from. And indeed, when you're writing a book that ties into a movie, how do you decide what relationship that book has to this film and what place it fills? And here is Jeff Jensen. One of my jobs on the movie, once we had the story in place was, okay, this is our movie, this is our story, now let's lock down the history of Plus Ultra that led up to the creation of Tomorrowland. I think that one of the things I'm really interested in and I feel like I can be pretty good at is um, creating, like, like looking into history, seeing moments of history, and then trying to create story that brings to life that part of the history. When I was asked to create sort of like the mythology of Tomorrowland leading up to the creation of Tomorrowland, I didn't just think in terms of milestones, like who was in Plus Ultra at this time, and um, what did they develop. 
I thought about story. So whenever there was like a big flashpoint of history, I would always include like a paragraph or a whole page of like, like here's the story of what happened in Plus Ultra at that time. And there were two stories in particular in our early history of Plus Ultra that, um, that, I, uh, that I developed and pitched to Brad and he loved. Um, one was this idea that there was a decision made around 1939 to shut down Plus Ultra for a time because of the threat represented by Nazi Germany. And that the people that were part of Plus Ultra at the time would naturally be really interested in A, protecting their secrets from the Germans, but B, would be pretty like activated to fight Nazi Germany and help their countries um, uh, um, uh, uh, defeat uh, you know, the Axis powers. And so um, there would be an idea of like of a suspending operation of, um, of Plus Ultra and people going their separate ways. And then this would lead to a fallow period, a dormant period in Plus Ultra's history throughout the 40s in which um, Plus Ultra would go dormant before being reactivated in the early 50s with, uh, with people like Walt. And so I pitched a story um, in that that, would, that was essentially kind of what, in, that the idea that like, Adolf Hitler would catch wind of Plus Ultra, would send agents to America to want to find secrets, um, to like gain access to it, and that that story would ultimately be the catalyst for shutting down Plus Ultra, would be the catalyst for other things too, like say, like building the atomic bomb, that kind of thing. Um, another story that I developed um, uh, during that time, uh, for that time period, would actually take place either right before, like, before the end of the war, right at, it was right around, to, it would be the mystery of Nikola Tesla's death. And the idea that Nikola Tesla's death was the result of, um, of, of people coming after him for his plus ultra secrets. And then that was a story that would involve like people like Amelia Earhart and sort of like uh, trying to like get back from Nazis, but also the Soviets and even the American early American intelligence apparatus, st secrets that were stolen from Tesla. And so this was part of the history. Um, Disney Publishing approached us with um, with like, wanting to partner with us and get us involved in creating some like publishing projects that would sort of like get outside the box of the usual movie publishing program of an adaptation and kids books and kids learning books could we do something special and unique for this movie and um, they brought me in and I talked to them about various things I talked to them about the backstory that we had we talked to them about these stories and they loved the idea of maybe like bringing one of these stories to life as either a graphic novel or a novel and I pitched him these two stories in particular. And the editors there said, well, we actually like both of them. And they love the idea of Amelia Earhart as like a heroine in this story. And so it was like, is there any way you can blend the two together? And, um, and, and I was like, uh, yeah, I think so. That led to uh, uh, the, the book, the book. Um, and considerations like, very, very early on, as I started thinking about um, the book and how to tell the story, 
Um, I was kind of borrowing a little bit from like what we learned from the movie, but my own natural instincts, which is to say that a, a story into sort of like learning about the history of Plus Ultra should be told through people that didn't have any knowledge of Plus Ultra. And so they, sh you know, heroes then like Lee and his mom, Clara, um, uh, kind of bumbling into a story in which they kind of like learn about the history of Plus Ultra and they encounter Plus Ultra and they encounter threats to Plus Ultra. That just seemed like a natural. And then kind of picking very specifically um, a, 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 a date or a series of events that would be just perfect for bringing the themes and ideas of Plus Ultra to life. Well, this 4th of July weekend in 1939 where you have both the World's Fair taking place and that you have um, the very, you know, like the first national, um, like, you know, uh, world con event. There had been kind of like smaller regional science fiction conventions leading up to that point, but this kind of represented a major national meeting of nascent sci-fi fandom at that time, taking place that weekend at a time when Albert Einstein is actually in real life vacationing on Long Island and weighing and wrestling with matters of whether or not to like write a letter to Roosevelt um, to like commence the Manhattan Project and all these other things that are happening in the world. Um, like once I found out about that weekend and I found out about the Einstein component, I was like, this story is taking place on this weekend and we'll just weave this whole story. And that was also the weekend of Lou Gehrig, like, uh, like, uh, um, uh, 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 like giving his famous like sign off, um, uh, retiring from baseball. That weekend was just perfect. And so um, it just became pretty uh, like, I'm going to work with this weekend. I'm going to make this story work for that weekend. All of my considerations for the, the, for the book regarding mythology um, were all in service of the movie. Like, I didn't want to do anything that contradicted the movie, but I also wanted to put stuff in the book that might be able to help explain some of the movie. So, for example, the wire transfer technology um, that you see in the movie, this sort of, like, wire-based teleportation system that Plus Ultra, like, had. Um, I wanted the book to explain, like, where that technology came from and kind of, like, capture your imagination for what its utility was in the world of Plus Ultra. The book ends with this implication that the dream of Tomorrowland, this sort of city of the future built in this parallel dimension, be what the, the seeds of it, like, resided with a, with a, with a dreamer, a woman, Claire, who had, uh, you know, sketched and uh, imagined what this city could possibly look like. Maybe a first stab at it was undertaken by this, this robot, this, this cyborg that got uh, stranded and castawayed, uh, marooned in Tomorrowland. Um, yeah, that was um, how I rationalized that, how I was going to sell that to Damon and Brad if they were ever going to be like, you did what? Um, like, uh, uh, was is that, in my view, that if you explored the parallel dimension of Tomorrowland, you might find actually vestiges of earlier attempts to build Tomorrowland, rough drafts of Tomorrowland, if you will. Um, site A, Site B, Site C. <laughs> And I think that, and maybe even kind of like functioning metropolises that are part of a larger Tomorrowland complex of 
of, of interconnected cities. And, uh, and so that was kind of like my rationalization for the end of, of, of the book. This is that that kind of represented like uh, some some early rough draft stabs at at, at, at the project that would become the, tom- the the Tomorrowland that you see in the movie. The way that Jeff discusses all of these alternate sites in the Tomorrowland alternate dimension really shows me, and just makes me think about how vast the possibilities are. Should this should this movie ever be rediscovered in a way that inspires? certain companies to allow for elaborations in whatever media there's a rich landscape of stories to be told because that one city we saw was just one corner of presumably a completely alternate planet and we asked jeff more about that a little bit later but uh you think about these the implications of these questions when you see scenes like this one where they come out of the wire transfer and as we were discussing it's pure 1980s technology. Right. And that paints a very clear indication of that's when things were shut down. This is when Nix closed the door and said, nope, nobody else. And um, a and lot now, of those questions. Now, this scene coming up, this for me was the most moving the most moving scene just because it oddly justified that crazy conspiracy theory that we had been following for years before. The, the music crescendos and you see the, the the four founders and it's so wild after I mean I had this great opportunity to actually visit the Eiffel Tower after the experience and so the idea of how much this actually parallels the sort of real world was you know this one's a little satisfying. this one's a little bigger it's a little bigger <laughs> yeah that's well they sure. had to they had to fit all four guys in there <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great scene, and Giacchino's music here. We haven't talked much about it, but especially in this moment when when Athena turns that corner and there's the low instance of the plus ultra theme uh, going over, it's it's such a beautiful moment to reveal those four guys, enhanced for people like us, of course. Right, and I'm sure you know it's it's. I really love that this film has this sort of two, the soundtrack that Giacchino did has these two common, you know these two common melodies melodies one reflects plus ultra one sort of represents you know tomorrowland meaning the you know the sort of place and the spirit and one represents plus ultra itself and And i think that that's really cool it is cool and by the end of the movie they converge into themselves right which is you know what giacchino does best and speaking of people on their a game as we were uh, praising Clooney again here. One of the discrepancies noticed in the screenplay, the final, the final shooting draft of the screenplay, is that in the conversation where Frank is describing the history of Plus Ultra briefly here with the mannequins, uh, the bit, the small ad lib about alternating current, when he says, when he when he explains that they're they hated each other, right. the script simply says they hated each other, and I feel like. I don't know if this was a Clooney ad lib or if someone or if, or if Brad was screaming from behind the cameras say something about alternating current. But I know when I saw uh, several times when we saw the movie in theaters that got an audible laugh from people who understood the his, the true life history of Tesla and Edison. Right. And so I always appreciated that moment. So I don't know who to thank for that moment, but uh, but just a great uh... and what a grand and miraculous sort of fun thing to think about. I mean, this idea that the Eiffel Tower, which was a legitimate thing, 
that the Parisians hated when it was built. Right. They thought it was ugly and yet became a ridiculous part of their culture. Right. Like, you know, this sort of grand idea that we have these, you know, amazing things in our real world hidden. And there are so many pieces of science fiction, be it alternate universe or apocalyptic, that have attempted to recontextualize the Eiffel Tower as a piece of science fiction. But none, I might be biased, but none of them has been so effective as Tomorrowland for me, simply because of the implication of the Eiffel Tower as a rocket gantry makes a lot of sense just based on the design of it. Like, it looks, I mean, obviously it's very fantastical and they had to pull some cheats as to how it would work, but just the, the cross beams. Right, it, yeah. It, it, it makes complete sense aesthetically. And uh, and I and so for that reason, it's permanently lodged in my mind. Um, these French Dave Clark's here wearing something completely different than any of the other uh, Dave Clark's. Uh, I'm just imagining what the uh, what the underground. I'm just always imagining that they're just like they're idling somewhere, completely turned off until they get the call, and now, then it's like. But that is the question: Are they idling somewhere, or are they leading full existences as the Gernsbox are? Yeah, because the Gernsbox—you've got to wonder how much of the Gernsbach's robotic life of hosting a, a, a science fiction memorabilia store was that the programming of Nix's plan, or throughout their mission, did they rogue robots determine that they're going to attract the most people with pins by setting up this nerd's paradise? And so I, I've always kind of wondered. Uh, were the Gernsbox based on real people? You know, were, were, were those were the model of that robot because you know there was some speculation. I don't know if this was entirely fan speculation or not. We we didn't get a chance to ask any of the creators. This will be uh, for the next year's commentary yes. for the second anniversary commentary. There was some speculation that Athena was the no, audio animatronic Athena was based on Nix's deceased daughter. Which is obviously uh, probably a complete fan fiction concept, but it did make me wonder, could indeed the Gerns box have been based on a real set of people? Well, and it's just interesting, this British, Tomorrowland British connection of, even at the end of the film, the last recruitment bot that asks, you know, um, that asks Frank, well, who are we looking for? They're all British well, and I think that that, uh, I don't know if that has any vast implications for British robotic, <laughs> robotics, but I think that that, I think that was a very uh, um, simple solution to telling the audience immediately, oh, these are robot kids. Yeah, yeah. You know, this, like, yeah. this kid very much reminds me of the male version of Athena right, right yeah. now. And, um, and, and I don't think that the movie necessarily supports any kind of vast interpretation of accents across the board in the same way that one of the more uh, interesting fan theories uh, that came to prominence was the fact that people thought that Frank might be an audio animatronic because of the way the, um, the monitor's prediction of his death when Nick shoots him shows him being blown back and not disintegrated right. by the ray gun. And I think that's just as easily solved by saying that like a Star Trek phaser, these ray guns have two settings. Now here comes one of the most like heartbreaking scenes in the film. Oh yeah. Is this, you know, you have this great reveal of like we're here, we made it, and then it's not anything that was shown to her. And there's a real 
intentional or not, there's this real very much connection to sort of the actual Tomorrowland, that black sludge. That you that see on Space Mountain. All yeah. over the, all over the things, this idea that... They really got it perfectly, didn't the they? The white, pristine Tomorrowland is just, you know, like unobtainable and that and, is yet another thing that and i remember we say. were sitting in a what i was sitting in a show a screening and this little girl when that reveal happened she yelled out no like it wasn't what she wanted either right and i think that this is the boldness of the movie this is where the movie punches you in the gut and people rebounded at that and i still get people saying you know they wish that it wasn't this difficult but this is what the movie is trying to say is you don't get this world. You have to build it. Even in this film, you can't escape into it. And yes, perhaps that gives, at least in the terms of the confines of this movie, some unanswered questions about what happened to Tomorrowland. And beyond that, I think you and I, and people perhaps who played The Optimist and knew a little bit more about Plus Ultra than a general audience learned from the film, had the question of, what about Nix? Does he consider himself Plus Ultra? Does Nix hate plus ultra did he like it originally how did that work and so when we finally got the opportunity to talk to damon we just had to ask him what is the relationship between nix and plus ultra i guess that i would say that nix considers himself a member of plus ultra in the same way that donald trump considers himself a member of the republican party (laughs) that that is to say like well that he that's what he signed up for he was recruited by plus ultra but so by definition he is plus ultra but his own ideology started to split so significantly that you know he 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 almost started a new political party in his thinking and has probably banished most of the people plus ultra was was founded on on an I, ideal of optimism of um of we can accomplish anything if we set our minds to it and yes we have to overcome uh, you know, pessimism is out there. Um, there is danger. There is violence. Uh, there is evil in the hearts of men. That said, we can overcome all of that um, uh, as the uh, as the as the introductory film sort of states. You know, um, what World War II would just uh, you know wars happen, and so you have to acknowledge that. And but you can say like we can learn from this and we can be better, or you can have the next philosophy, which is mankind is always inclined. Uh, towards these things and based on his speech at the end um, he actually kind of feels like we're not you know certain individuals are not really worthy of utopia but then when you see the utopia that he's created for himself it's very isolationist it's not really the kind of place that that we that Casey sees in her her vision of Tomorrowland at its uh, at, at its at its peak so but I think that Nick sort of lacks the fun, fundamental self-awareness to understand that his own negative thinking has basically created the very scenario that he wanted to avoid probably when he joined up but he's a cynic you know he's a guy who looks at the jetpack and says all that matters is does it fly yeah. it doesn't you know does it work it doesn't matter that wow like you created this beautiful thing um, that may not have any pragmatic application other than fun. But, um, you know, I think he had, had his blinders on. And for me, I think that this, this, this isolationist, you don't get the utopia, again, in our society right now, this is another big, common sort of mindset that a lot of people have. And it's, it's startling to see actually play out in the real world because you might watch this movie and think, well, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? The isolationist 
attitude of Nick's. Oh, oh, he's a he's a cartoon villain wanting to kick everybody out of his country, uh, and yet somehow the real world has shown a, a, a villainy equal to his his point of view. You know, yeah, and it's just it's it's fascinating and it's terrifying and. It's just, again, sort of phenomenal how that mindset existed, but not in the way that it does today before when this film came out in theaters. Let us hope that this movie is not too much of a divining rod for what we have in store for us in that sense. But when critics talk about this part of the movie, getting to Tomorrowland, and there is a certain criticism of, well, what happened in those 20 years? Why is it like this? The movie doesn't answer it. For me, I'm on the complete other side of it. No surprise, because I love the movie. But I learned everything I needed to know about Nix's character in the first scene he was in in the movie. When he's talking to young Frank and he criticizes his jetpack, everything Nix says about the jetpack implies a personality that would no doubt do everything that he has done to Tomorrowland when we finally get there. And so even though we don't have a direct reference in the film to what exactly happened... I have no problem mentally filling in the blanks because it's a logical extension of that guy that we met who said, you know, you know, what's the purpose of this object? If it doesn't work, it has no purpose. And when we talk about, you know, the scene that was unfortunately cut was talking about why the why Tomorrowland was so empty because so much power is being pushed through into this into this monitor. Right. The idea that his utopia almost became obsessed with the world, like this idea of this peering out into the world of, you know, it's just me, isolationist, but still this obsession with, like, the world sort of crumbling. And that, to me, is a statement on pessimism. And it is a metaphor for what happens spiritually to you when you accept a pessimistic view of the world. What has Nix built for himself? In this particular sequence where they're in the monitor, there's a close-up on Nix's face when he's looking at the destruction in front of him. And while, yes, he is absolutely depressed about the world, I get the distinct sense from that performance that here is a man who has surrounded himself for, we have to assume, 20 years or more by visions of doomsday. He has literally rerouted all the power in Tomorrowland to provide himself a constant stream of apocalyptic imagery as he has been feeding out into the world. And that's where the metaphor comes out of is if you are fatalistic... And if you only surround yourself with visions of how things could go wrong in your own life, in the world in general, if that's the part that you focus on, in the terms of the movie, the wolf that you feed, that's all that's going to become manifest. Well, and it's interesting because in that last scene, you know, he talks about how the goal was to, sh- to show the world its destruction, to make the world a better place. Yes. And it's again that sort of pessimistic mentality and idea that, you know... Things have you have to show people the ultimate worst in order for them to make it better, rather than you know showing them something something good to inspire them. The idea that this negativity doesn't inspire that only negativity inspires people to make progress or make change. And I think that there are a lot of people out there, and certainly it's a it's a difficult problem. I don't think that there's a right answer to it, but. The idea, the, fe- the, the feeling in your gut that just showing them hope for the future won't be enough either. And that the idea that there have been some suggestions that even a, an inversion 
of the ending of this movie would have been more satisfying. Well, what if instead of blowing up the monitor, Casey broadcasts a hopeful message that inspires the world? To me, that's giving in to Nix's dualistic sim- simplicity of his mindset in terms of choosing one thing over the other. Right. This would have just been an equal sin in the opposite direction. And I think the ultimate result thematically we get in this movie is a more balanced one. The truth is in between. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. We get that synthesis of accepting the absolute failures of our past ambitions and using the ideas of the past, accepting their failures to try and create a future that doesn't fail in that way. Right. And that's a big part of this movie is all the characters in some way are dealing with either the past or their past and how they acknowledge or deny the past in order to go into the future. And perfect thematic structure for a movie called Tomorrowland. And that is the ultimate satisfying thing about the final movements of Frank's character is here's a guy locked up in his childhood home who still is scarred by this young relationship that he had that that somehow represents the way the past can hurt you. Right. And he's not let go of it. He can't even say Athena's name. In a very complex, you know, in a very complex relationship because... You know, to me, that relationship faced with this idea of she is this sort of perpetual child. You know, there was this there was this controversy over, you know, was that appropriate? Was that appropriate or not? And I'm like, that is like almost some like, you know, Star Trek style, like giving people this idea that in the future, these relationships can be that complex because... She, she, she doesn't age. She doesn't age, and also it's about him accepting the fact that she hurt him, she was a piece of technology, and I think that in a movie full of science fiction concepts, this is one of the more interesting ones. Right. Because his relationship with Athena somehow, in some way, in my mind, does reflect Frank's relationship with technology, Frank's relationship to his own past, and he's locked into it. And so at the end of the film, when he physically lets go of Athena in order to transcend the errors of the past, his own past, because he created the algorithm. I mean, how perfectly balanced is that conflict that the thing he uses to destroy the thing that he erroneously created in the past is a physical representation of the spiritual act. He's letting go of his past when he lets go of Athena. Right. And so... And you see this half second, you know, she refuses... She refuses to accept that this is the future. We see a slight change. Nick sees the flicker. He sees the fact that she did create a momentary change. And one might assume, oh, if Nick sees this, he will, uh, you know, maybe have a change of heart. Maybe that's the way for him. But the first couple of lines in the next sequence, uh, wonderfully delivered by Athena, are, I guess, the... The one millionth variable or whatever she yeah. says in the in the determination of the future wasn't enough to convince him. So this right. idea that the idea getting down to some of the other statements of this movie that oh one person oh great so you've brought one dreamer to me and you think one dreamer can change the world and it's like but but it's a it's a viral thing it's, and maybe that's rooted in the whole plus ultra history that's so difficult is this idea of in our world the non-plus ultra world, each one of these individual people had a huge impact on society. 
But if you look at the plus ultra as it's sort of built, you have this idea of, no, that was all these smart people coming together to like sort of tease out this technology to our society. Meaning it wasn't just, it wasn't the actions of a single person. Right. It was the actions of a group of smart people getting together to build something. And, and we see a direct conflict with that in the end of the film where it's it's her actions. Again, though, thanks to the people that we met. It's her realization of it, a single person's realization of it, that drives sort of the future forward to know we have to destroy the monitor. And these are some of the questions that arise from it is when these groups of people get together who individually had such a large effect and are looking to make an even larger effect together... When people get together like that, and when people form these organizations, these corporations, these things, where does it go wrong? What is it about that proposition that has a tendency towards what Nix eventually becomes? And, and I think that's one of the most valuable things that this movie says, is that we've got a new hope with these two people, uh, if you include Athena 3. Frank and Casey, what they represent moving forward what they've learned, and who they've become because of each other. Isolated, the world would have ended. This movie shows us this very clearly. But because they came together, both of them changed as people. They unlocked a part of themselves that no one else could. And this allows them to go forth. And so when people criticize Tomorrowland saying, oh, nothing changed in the movie. Look, they're just going to give out the pins again. They're just going to make all the mistakes plus Ultra made before. Nothing changed. I say, you're not connecting with the characters of this movie because they have changed. And therefore, there's no way, knowing what they know and seeing what they've seen and definitively learning the lessons of Plus Ultra and putting them into action by destroying the monitor, they will do something very different in the future. Yes, we don't get to see exactly the effect of that, but the beauty of it is that lies in our imaginations. After the, after the credits roll, we get to decide what happens to Frank and what happens to Casey and their version of Tomorrowland. And indeed... Can we as viewers take those lessons into our own lives and apply it somehow into our own Tomorrowlands? Not literally Tomorrowland, but whatever we're building for ourselves. Right. And so we're coming up on one of the most, I think, probably quoted or controversial parts of this film. It goes in both directions because these... people love this and they hate it. Right. Nix's speech is is divisive, but then there are people who hate the rest of the movie but love just the speech. Right. It's and become a bit of a meme. Right. And so we had this ability to sit down, ask Damon, you know, about this speech and sort of how it was written, what the effects were. There was an assumption that Damon wrote this speech, and as we have found out, it couldn't be more the opposite. In fact, Damon only cops to writing one part of one sentence in this speech. The rest is pure Brad Bird. And here's Damon. Nix's speech was whole cloth Brad Bird. Like, he literally, he, he, he spit that out kind of very early on in the process as we were isolating, you know, once we figured out, at the time we were calling it the Oracle, it eventually became the Monitor because we didn't want to do, confuse things with the Matrix. But, um... <laughs> You know, when we once we we locked in on the fact that Nick's, you know, b this was his philosophy about humankind, Bird just unleashed that monologue, and you know, and I was like, oh my God, please tell me that you you we are recording this. Are you going to remember that? And he was like, oh yeah, I'll remember it. <laughs> I got the sense that he'd been giving that speech at uh, cocktail parties for years. But anyway, 
you know, I, um, I, I, uh, I think that the t all I contributed to that scene was the uh, was the iceberg and the Titanic line. Everything mm -hmm. else was uh, was pure bird. And that is a beautiful speech, and we have Brad Bird to thank for it, apparently. Yeah, and I think it's so. I mean, not to talk about the criticism of the movie, but what I really saw a lot online after this film came out is how. The, these particular lines represented the like what they like I was one of the, like the worst of Lindelofism right and <laughs> it's just it's so I think this speech is divisive because it connects it connects to you and you either have this sort of pessimism you know no like that's not that's not who we are we're right. better almost like an optimistic but pessimism about the the speech or you have this like almost, you know, acceptance of who we are as a society and how we go forward and how even when we are shown the worst and we do have these massively negative effects in our society, we don't do anything about it because we don't step up individually to do something about it. We don't take that action. And that role of the individual in terms of the community there's a lot being said about that in the movie here in terms of, yes, it's not so much that you wait for the group to do something or you indeed wait for anyone to do something because waiting for someone else to do it is exactly what Nix is talking about. And to me, this speech does exactly what it needs to do. It's coming out of the mouth of the villain and how anyone could interpret what Nix is saying as what the movie is trying to say is to me absurd. He's the antagonist and he is... Presenting an alternate viewpoint. Yes, it is wonderful that Brad Bird laced it with enough humanity so that you feel for the villain. Because don't we always want to feel for the villain? Absolutely. But to think that that is what the movie's trying to say disregards everything the movie is saying and not in dialogue. Because the real meaning and truth of a movie, as a, cin a purely cinematic work, is not through the dialogue. Dialogue is another sound effect. It's through the actions of the characters, the definitive choices that they make demonstrably that birth a theme. And what these characters are doing is saying something, and it is very much not in line with what Nix is saying. It's, right. It's not that as much. As, right. as delightful as it is to imagine Brad Bird going on that rant at dinner parties, as Damon implied, uh, uh, I do not think that the document that is this movie ends with the text of Nix's speech alone. Right. And this and is the ending. We're here. This is this is the finale of the movie. The big uh the big final movements are happening now. Finishing up here, very very difficult. Lots lo I mean one of my biggest con you know when when the reviews came out, a lot of people were disappointed that this movie well it ends in just this sort of giant this giant sort of fight scene. Giant fight scene and yet also surprisingly intimate. It happens in one contained location with only the characters that we have been have been dealing with here. And and I like how that plays counter to it. It doesn't blast out into the rest of Tomorrowland in some unnecessary way. I, I enjoy the scale of this personally. Yeah. And fighting robots. Who doesn't love fighting robots? And it adds, you know, it still all adds to this this real mis mysteriousness of Tomorrowland, that idea that we we're, we're still not getting that Tomorrowland. We're still not getting the full reveal. We're getting this tiny little corner of it. Right. That is just just the monitor and just that, you know, sort of bridgeway plaza. 
that idea, I mean, even if you think about the design, you know, this idea that the bridgeway to Earth is right next to the thing that sort of, you know, saying it's doom is just <laughs> like... That was another uh, another small bit of the deleted scene that I missed was the uh, more more explicit implication that the reason that gateway was built was to siphon off artworks of great prominence and preserve the history of of a failing world in Tomorrowland. Right. One hopes that Frank and Casey very quickly returned those paintings to their rightful yeah, exactly. <laughs> galleries. Um, and, you know, even in here, you know, we get this sort of setup of, you know, the, the future that's determined versus, you know, versus being able to change it. Oh, quite literally. We see the, right. the tachyon uh, future predictions occurring throughout, uh, which I think, for me, lends a really kinetic, like this shot with Athena running through the plaza as different alternate paths behind her uh, branch out. It's a very kinetic uh, action conceit that I, that I still find very visceral and enjoyable to watch. Um, this is where some, again, I apologize, Hasten, for reverting to answering criticism. Yeah. But as I did not create the movie, I feel quite open <laughs> to uh, answering the criticism. One uh, understandable comment that often uh, comes up is that Casey is sidelined in the ending here and that she doesn't have uh, quite enough to do. And personally, I'll admit it is a very slight character arc for her. I mean, obviously, everything that happens with her and Frank uh, converging as characters is, is beautifully laid out. And, and I enjoy the action uh, of this finale. What happens with Casey is very subtle in the sense that she was somebody at the beginning who destroyed in a hope to create. But she destructed those who were hoping to destroy what she wanted to do. And so now the impetus for her actions in the finale are getting rid of this damn bomb. Right. And so so someone very explosive at the beginning is taxed with eliminating the explosive nature, which indeed turns out to be inevitable for what Frank needs to do. But it's the wonderful way they dovetail. Frank is the creator who now must destroy and she is the destroyer who now must create. And when you look at, you know, Nick's sitting there completely crushed by you know, his sort of his sort of own invention and his own technology, you know, literally forcing him, you know And beautifully into his not position. his invention. Right. He 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 took it from right. Frank and made it into something ugly. Right. I mean that is just absolutely, you know And there was an even to speak once more of some of the deleted sequences, un- the unfortunate loss of the longer version of the World's Fair scene at the beginning was the introduction of the probability machine at the IBM Pavilion, which is a bunch of falling balls. So the idea of these falling balls representing probability and Nix's obsession with probability manifests in crushing him by a giant ball. Yeah. There was a nice parallel imagery there that we lost uh, in this version. And what we're left with is uh, simply a very amusing close-up on on Nix saying... Uh, uh, what is a foul word in, well, in England? Bollocks. Bollocks. We're allowed to say it because we're yeah, American. Yeah. Yeah. Um, These final moments with Athena and the automated recording she saved for Frank, for, for Frank were just a wonderful mini-movie in itself. And I love 
the snippets that they've chosen to show through their history with each other. Right. It evokes everything we need to know about their relationship and yet somehow makes us want to know so and much more. I really, you know, there's part of me that really is fascinated with this idea that this is, at his age, such an uncomfortable relationship. But this idea that, you know, this sort of like, this love and this passion and this idea that she kind of loved him the most by not telling him, by not destroying his, you know, That was her expression dream. of it, you mean. Right, yes, yeah. Yes, That, you know. And yet that somehow created some trust issues for right. him. Right, <laughs> right. But this level of, you know, like, she she just wanted what was the best for him and didn't, you know, didn't know the later impact that that would have. I mean, obviously, it would become obvious as... It would become obvious as Fright grew up and she didn't. Right. That, you know, that this this, this is kind of a strange relationship. But then, of course, we have, you know... And that, again, gets down, back down to what is Frank learning? What is the theme of this relationship? And it gets back down to everything this movie is about. Probability, determinism, when he says, she's nothing but ones and zeros. She is binary. She is, there is no, there's nothing more than these two things, yes or no, one or zero. And yet this is the moment where he accepts through that as the world and nature is binary, our DNA, we have some semblance of humanity. And she is just as human as we are. Right. A beautiful Blade Runner style theme to, to send us off with there. But uh, it's a very touching moment. And I mean, you see the realization on his face. You, you know the implications of everything he's learning looking at his face right now. Right. And the performance with her is so wonderful, enhanced by the digital effects of the twitching yeah, uh, eyelids and the, the lips and all this. They did a, a really nuanced job there. Very difficult line to, to balance on visually. And yet there is one bit of a beautiful imagery here in what is a nonsensical bench with a shrub in the middle of it. <laughs> Why is that there? Well, of course it's there because we need a bit of nature against her technology to show what we're learning about her. It's a visual representation of that. Uh, which you see peppered all over this, uh, all over this movie, and we're reminded for the finale here of what Frank ultimately has to do with Athena. Right, and the it, idea it, that he always wanted to make her laugh, and this idea that he has to take, he has to do this. You know that that this this opening and final scene. You know with the thing with the invention that he brought to. to I mean, he has this invention that he brought to Tomorrowland the jetpack, jetpack yeah. and he also has the monitor. You know mm-hmm. that he invented. This idea that, you know, these two things sort of come back together, kind of, you know, if we would have had that reference, right. kind of like the World's Fair, you know, this idea of sort of wrapping up that complete. And it's all still there. I mean, Frank's journey, I think, it, even with the deleted scenes, is, is preserved. I think maybe Nix's could have had a little bit more punch with it. But I, I th- everything we need for Frank, I feel like, is here in this moment. And it's, it's very subtextual and it's very beneath the surface and it's very subtle. But to me, that makes it all the more delicate and all the more wonderful is uh, when it works, man, does it work. And uh, and this is a payoff. I mean, tried to make her laugh and maybe she gives only a chuckle, but he makes her laugh. And that means something very significant to him. And it shows how transcendent he's realized our creations can be 
and um, that the technology is not just the hardware, it's the ideas behind it and uh, what we imbue it with of our own humanity that decides whether or not it is destructive or constructive. Right. And um, what would a movie about Tomorrowland be without a statement about technology and how it can go wrong or how it can go very right? moment of silence for yeah the passing of athena which is also in a sort of progressive logical way um we know that audio animatronics can do this because of what we saw with the gernsbacks uh, exploding after um the the fight sequence in blast from the past right <laughs> and there is nix's ultimate <laughs> death losing a small bit of its irony and subtext but Nonetheless, I don't think he's dead personally. Yeah, and then of course with you know Frank, we have this direct callback to oh, a perfect know, visual callback right here. Right. I mean, Brad Bird, being the visual stylist that he is, he frames these two shots at the beginning of the ending identically. Frank jetpack bounce, 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 right. bounce, skid, skid, skid. And, and what I love about this whole scene that upon multiple viewings I realized it's this whole kind of technology turn it off and turn it back on again kind of mentality i mean we see them resting not you know against a building or against a you know but in this sort of like beautiful and it's naturey those environment and it's this world that they discovered and it's another expression of this idea we're coming together we're not isolating ourselves nix was the isolationist and frank had fallen into that and he had allowed technology to be an expression of his isolation. What is a jetpack but a one-man, I'm getting out of here vehicle? You know, and so the idea that he can now have this new context for technology that brings us together. If technology is not imbued with just the ideas of one man, but if we all come together and decide what we want this thing to be, right? it's, it's, a, it's a communal thing. And indeed, here's our new team. We're getting... We're getting we're getting dad into the picture. He's right. an we have we have another robot, another uh, Goliath. Goliath robot. in the back. He's that's rebuilding, rebuilding. just like a direct callback to the yep. first to the first scene in the in the you know when he and when he lands when the Goliath robot repairs Frank's jetpack, which to me again, over interpreter that I am, is the perfect representation of the themes of this movie being he made a jetpack that didn't work. He needed someone else to fix it and help him. On his own, failure. Stigmatized failure. This movie is about the creative process. We cannot, like Nix, say, oh, 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 this is going to fail, so we push it aside. Or your jetpack doesn't work, so it's a failure and it's bad. But the creative process is about accepting your failure and transcending it. And, and in terms of the past, we had past failures. And when, and when in our, in our society and its interface with technology, like when has it not been that way? I mean, the high... Right. The ridiculously, you know, high-tech life that we get to enjoy today is definitely an effect of a bunch of people getting together. There's no one specific person in that creation process that makes it. And in terms of creative ideals, here's Brad Bird on whether or not this film he considers his final cut. Would you consider, putting this diplomatically, would you consider the version of the movie in theaters your director's cut? Yeah, I would. Um, Uh... It doesn't mean that it's exactly the movie I set out to make, but uh, you do your best shot at it, 
and then the movie has its own things in mind. Right. And I've tried fighting a movie and saying, no, this is what you are. But if you do that, you don't wind up with anything good. You have to play tennis with the movie that you think you're making. And that movie always answers back. And you say, this is what you are. Right. And it goes, I'm this. Yeah, yeah. And you go, no, you're not. You're this. And then pretty soon you come to some sort of agreement which is between the movie you set out to make and the movie that it wants to be. Well, that's very enlightening and actually very encouraging because you, you hear a lot of people talk about things that I never bought into, but I like hearing that you're saying that the movie fought you back, not the studio, necessarily. No. It was more the movie, what the movie, you felt the movie needed, you made those decisions based on that. Yes, and, and you know, uh, you set out, movies are not remotely an exact science. They, you're... You're dealing with, I mean, if you thought about it in a rational way, like here is your assignment, you're making a movie. You're, okay, what, what is my mission? You know, your mission is to figure out what people of all ages and every nationality and every life experience will like two years from now or three years from now. That's your goal, okay, go! And you're, you just go, that's impossible. There's no possible no. way for me to do that. So th all that does is send me into a fetal ball in the corner. Um, what you can do is go, m your assignment is to make something that you would like to see. Then that becomes simple and you go, okay, I can do that. I don't know how many other people are going to agree with me, but I can make something that I want to see. And then you go out based on your best guess of what you're trying to go for, and then you do it, and then you look at it, and it tells you, this part works, this part is not exactly, you thought it was gonna work, it doesn't, it work. doesn't work. So what are you gonna do about it? Are you gonna just let it not work, or are you gonna try to find a way to work with it? Pivot. And, and um, sometimes you wind up with something that's better than what you set out to do. And other times you're just trying to go, you know, I don't know that the thing that I imagined actually ever would work. My imagination was faulty. Of course, we do not think Brad Bird's imagination was faulty, but it is enlightening uh, to send off the film with Brad Bird's words about what he had to do to get it to the big screen. And now, as a little bonus, over the credits, here's Brad Bird on the credits. The idea, the idea thought behind it, and, and we had, we, when we were first kind of auditioning companies, we explored, there were a lot of different versions of those end titles. And we liked you and company very much, and when we started talking with them, the notion was World's Fair posters. Mm. And that mm. there was a sort of a silk screen sort of appearance to the posters, which is... You know, the Disneyland. Yeah, yeah the, the old attraction posters. posters are really cool, and, and oh, I yes. love them. And and they came up with these wonderful designs, and I loved it. What future might there be for Tomorrowland as a franchise or as a storytelling opportunity? We couldn't resist asking all three of the film's main creators what they thought about it. I think it would be wonderful. I mean, uh, uh, Jeff Jensen already. Uh, uh, kind of did that with uh, before Tomorrowland, um, and um, it certainly um, there's enough in the idea that Jeff and Damon first had, uh, and I was lucky enough to contribute to 
um, to take it in a lot of different directions. It's, um, it's the kind of thing that um, you can hit any area uh, between the, the forming of Plus Ultra to now, and also there's time travel that could occur in any of those times. So, perhaps, perhaps. So it's kind of a, a huge um, potential universe. You know, sure. I mean, I, I think that we have to accept the pragmatic realities of, uh, of the marketplace, as it were. Um, you know, I we spend a tremendous amount of time and energy um, uh, building this world, and it would certainly be exciting to play in again. And I really think that there is there is there there. Um, uh, maybe years from now, we'll effectively sort of unpack, um, you know, uh, the mistakes that were made or the things that we did right and find a way to kind of revisit it in an interesting way. Um, uh, but I think that just sort of the, you know, my, my, my desire to go back into that realm again, well, it definitely exists. Um, I still think that particularly in the area of, you know, Jeff, um, constructed these great, uh, elaborate backstories, some of which appeared in Before Tomorrowland, the uh, the book that he he co-authored, um, just relating to you know the disappearance of Amelia Earhart or things that alluding to things that happened in World War II that Plus Ultra may have been involved in, and I kind of feel like that's really fertile, uh, innovative ground for uh, for storytelling. But um, you know, I. Uh, I haven't really let myself go there because I think the likelihood of getting to tell those stories anytime soon is uh, relatively slim. I don't recall any conversation among the filmmakers in which we ever talked about where the story would go from here. I definitely had my own ideas about where it would go from here. I was constantly kind of drawn to whether or not the world really wants Tomorrowland. Yeah, there's something really radical that it represents, and there's a lot of like uh, you know amazing possibilities, but do we really want it? And just exploring those those tensions uh, between the sort of like the, you know real, real radical sci-fi possibilities with considerations of what our real world is really like and what human beings are really like. I think that any Tomorrowland movie that moved forward that dealt with issues of future, the future and technology would have to seriously explore and take seriously just what technology is doing to us as human beings um, for better and for worse. Uh, how, how is it expanding our humanity and deepening our humanity and how might it be diminishing our humanity? So I think that any movie going forward would, would probably first and foremost have to center on those themes, but I would love to see it taken into consideration political and economic themes. One version of the story at one point when we were trying to consider radical fixes to our movie when it felt like it wasn't working was what if what if the robots were radicalized to continue the work of Tomorrowland that the humans had abandoned by basically we, we did the ironic robot takeover movie in which the robots came to our world and made our world better <laughs> instead of like taking over. Right. What if the hostile robot takeover was entering into downtrodden parts of town and rebuilding kind of like bad parts of town into like these like gle the gleaming sci-fi future? Yeah. And w would that be cool? Or would that cause real problems? I, I envisioned a set piece where where the robots would land and take over 
like a um, uh, inner, inner city hospital that was woefully like understaffed and had poor resources and suddenly turned into a state-of-the-art hospital. And so, so, so suddenly kind of like the, this inner city has the greatest hospital in the world with all the state-of-the-art technology and kind of like really honestly exploring kind of like how might that be cool and how might that like create like real problems. In the months leading up to uh, the Tomorrowland release, when I was filled with all sorts of like hope against hope that it would be a huge hit and that yeah. we would soon be talking about what other kind of movies that we could t- tell. I was like, okay, what could be like a really cool twist about Tomorrowland that you don't know? Yeah. And if people really responded to like Nick's, how can we keep him in the fold? The idea is that we're in a parallel dimension, right? But it's a planet. And so if you went into space from Tomorrowland, from the parallel dimension, like where, where would you go? What if we found out that no, you didn't go into a parallel dimension with Tomorrowland. What you actually did was is that you went into the distant past to this Earth-like planet that existed in our solar system. If you, for example, took a rocket ship off of, the, of, of this parallel dimension planet Earth and you left, you would suddenly like, start flying and then you would encounter a planet that was actually like Earth. But if you landed on Earth, you would ultimately land and find yourself in the time of the Egyptians. So the idea would be that right. like everything that you saw in Tomorrowland in the movie was exactly. actually taking place <laughs> on another planet. Which, by the way, was a consideration that we had from the very beginning. The ideas in competition were parallel dimension, another planet. I did like this idea of, like, what if, like, Nix had some kind of backup plan where when he died, maybe his consciousness would transfer into another body. And then his way of getting Tomorrowland back would be to take a ship, get off the planet of Tomorrowland, go in our distant past then lock himself up in some cryogenic chamber like you know in in the past and then kind of like (laughs) reemerge in the present to take back Tomorrowland from like Casey and and, and Frank those were some really crazy notions I I suspect that uh, Damon and Brad would have vetoed that idea there's a little optimism for you and we'd like to thank all of you optimists for joining us we're gonna give the final words here to Damon Lindelof who we thank along with all the other creators for this film thanks again Thanks, man, and I really appreciate your continued um, uh, appreciation for uh, for the movie. Uh, it's imperfect, but I but I um, but I feel like um, we 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 tried to do something uh, different and new and exciting. And I continue to be immensely grateful to Disney for having let us take the swing at an original movie, albeit in a you know um, in a. Uh, in a familiar world where people know what Tomorrowland means, but it, it was the closest that you can come to me making an original movie inside that construct. But I'm even more grateful to, to you guys and the fans um, who, uh, who supported the film and appreciate what it was trying to be, even if it, uh, even if it didn't uh, check every box. Thank you. <laughs>